Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Um, so I guess one thing before we get to your talk, and we very much look forward to it, I guess one thing that all of us, I know specifically me, uh, a lot of the residents, a lot of the med students on the, the um, who join and, and listen in would love to hear kind of your trajectory, how you decided on female pelvic medicine uh, and reconstructive surgery, looking at voiding dysfunction, all that stuff. Uh, what in residency kind of took you that way? Yeah, so I um, actually, I trained in medical school in New York at NYU. And so I worked with some of the FPMRS folks there when I was in medical school, kind of liked it, but really hadn't made up my mind. In residency, I went through a phase where I was like, I definitely don't want to do FPMRS because it's like, oh, you're just going, you know, all the other women who go into FPMRS. And so I, you know, looked at everything else. And then during my research year, I had some time to really consider and, and realized I liked the uh, thought process that goes into reconstructive surgery. And I really liked the patient population and I had a great mentor. And I think that goes a long way when you have good mentors. Um, and so they supported me. I went to SUFU, which is our subspecialty meeting, which I really enjoyed. I like the people. And so um, I decided to go ahead and do a fellowship. I think it's a very uh, personal decision to do a fellowship. It's You don't necessarily need to do one in neurology. You can go out and practice right away, but it's a time commitment of one or two years depending on what kind of fellowship you do. It's a loss in salary. So you have to be committed to it. Yeah. Uh, but for me, I thought it was worth it. And it was honestly the best part of best part of training. You feel very special and people really treat you well. And it's just a different experience. You're really, you're learning, but your mentors treat you almost as colleagues. So it's very different from residency. And it's a really nice experience for two years. And in FPMRS, you don't take call, at least most of the fellowships, you don't take call. So that's really nice. Um, so it was a really nice two years. And then I went into academics, uh, primarily because I, I really like doing research. I love teaching residents. And so I decided to try in academics, but it was never a set path. It's always, um, for me personally, it's always been a contemplation about what the next step is and what looks right at the moment. And I think that's, uh, that's always a good way to go about it because priorities change over time. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the common theme is, you know, the, the mentors that you meet, the people that you meet, um, obviously there's so many different areas that you can be pulled to and you tend to like one area more than another based on whether it's research or, um, you know, someone that you meet that you just click with. And I think it's great to always hear that because we have a very unique feel and that's probably one of the most common things we hear about urology is the people, the people. And once you find the people you mesh with, um, I'm kind of still in that boat saying, no, I will never do this. No, I'll never do that. And then the next, you know, two months later, you're like, oh, this is kind of cool because um, I like the people that I work with. So um, I look forward to like, kind of seeing how that path opens up for me. But I really appreciate your insight on that. Uh, I won't take your time anymore. Um, welcome again. We very much look forward to your talk and I'll pass the mic over to you. Okay, excellent. So uh, good morning. Thanks for uh, tuning in this morning to learn about neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction. So today's okay, objectives are to review kind of the pathophysiology and a sort of a classification system for neurogenic bladder, discuss the workup and management of these patients. And then ultimately, I want to take a couple minutes at the end to talk about recurrent UTIs in this, in this particular patient population because they can be very problematic. So neurogenic bladder is defined as any patient who has symptoms of or a proven dysfunction uh, of lower urinary tract and a neurologic disorder or neurologic finding. So sometimes you'll see very often you get referred patients who are given this diagnosis of neurogenic bladder, but they don't have any true neurologic findings. And so those patients actually don't have neurogenic bladder. Uh, so when you're thinking about the pathophysiology of neurogenic bladder, the nervous system that 
sends signals includes all these different possible sites of pathology. And so during bladder filling, you can see here that the pons is in a, the pontine micturition center is in a constant state of parasympathetic inhibition. And so that inhibits detrusor contraction, allowing for bladder filling, and also causes a uh, positive uh, sympathetic tone and of the external sphincter so that you are essentially allowing for filling. In voiding, the converse happens and you get a, um, a uh, positive to the parasympathetic nervous system allowing for bladder contraction and then a uh, inhibition of the sympathetic nervous system allowing for sphincteric relaxation and subsequently allowing you to void. And so again, an abnormality in any area of uh, the cortical, spinal cord or peripheral lesions of the nervous system can result in abnormalities in the, uh, in the lower urinary tract. And so how do you classify these? There's a number of different classifications, but I like Alan Wien's classification. It goes over failure to store and failure to empty. And essentially in both of those categories, it can be either due to the bladder or the outlet. And the patient can have multiple different combinations of this, depending on what their pathology is. I'm going to give you some examples of this, and we'll go over this in more detail with each individual uh, uh, neurogenic problem. But here, if you look at failure to store of the bladder, it can be due to things like neurogenic DO, which you'll often see in patients who have MS, Parkinson's, stroke, spinal cord injury. You can also see a failure to store in the outlet. So that can be due to a really weakened sphincter, such as intrinsic sphincter deficiency. And sometimes you'll see that in lower level lesions, uh, spina bifida, or more peripheral injuries. You can also have a failure to empty due to the bladder. So the bladder having abnormal contractions, detrusor areflexia, or detrusor hypocontractility. Um, and then you can also have failure to empty due to detrusor sphincter dyssynergia based on the outlet, as well as kind of sphincter bradykinesia and Parkinson's. So these can cause difficulty emptying the bladder. This is a great kind of review slide, uh, which I believe I got from Dr. Steve Krauss, uh, where it goes over where the pathology is and what the most common neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction is. Kind of a good review, and we'll go over a little bit of this more in detail. But if you look at cortical lesions, most often they'll present with detrusor overactivity. And when you look at sacral, uh, suprasacral spinal cord lesions, they'll most often present with detrusor overactivity with some degree of detrusor or sphincter dyssynergia. And when you look at subsacral uh, spinal cord injuries or peripheral injuries, they'll often have detrusor areflexia with some impaired contractility, and some of them will have also impaired sphincter function, so they won't be able to empty. And again, you have to remember that patients don't follow a textbook, so not everyone falls into this category neatly, but it's a good idea to understand when patients come in kind of where you think they're going to end up so you know their level of risk. So clinically, these patients will present with lower urinary tract symptoms. Uh, these are the kind of most important tenets of, of management. They'll also have a potential for recurrent urinary tract infections. And the real important key here is that these patients, some of them are at real risk for renal deterioration. And how exactly does that happen? Well, if they have prolonged bladder outlet obstruction due to a problem with failure to empty at the outlet or bladder level, they can then develop impaired bladder compliance. And what that means is that the bladder thickens over time and becomes very stiff. And the bladder then transmits pressure uh, because it can't empty you know, uh, effectively, transmits that pressure retrograde and results in hydronephrosis. And I'm sure you've all seen this hydronephrosis over time um, causing pressure, parenchymal thinning, and this eventually leads to renal deterioration and, uh, and poor function. So the goals of urologic management, and I talk about this with all my patients on their first visit as a neurogenic bladder patient, because I think sometimes they have a hard time understanding what the main goal is. So I tell them first and foremost, the goal is to preserve your renal function. That's really, really important. Um, and so everything that we do is going to be to preserve renal function. We're also going to try and minimize any secondary complications from their lower urinary tract dysfunction, whether that's bladder stones, infection, incontinence, or skin sequelae. And then ultimately, I want to improve their quality of life due to what's acceptable to them. And, and it's always a work in progress with what they are able to do, what they want to do, and what you can really achieve for them. 
So in your evaluation, the, the mandatory things are you need a history, you need a physical exam, you need your analysis and a post void residual, and then a PSA for those that would fall into screening categories. Um, in select patients, you'll also get an upper tract and more in-depth lower tract evaluation. We'll go over who those patients should be moving forward. So in your diagnostic workup, you want to talk about symptoms. And so as far as urinary symptoms are concerned, you want to assess, are they having incontinence? How are they managing their bladder? If they're catheterizing, how frequently are they catheterizing? What kind of volumes are they getting when they catheterize? Are they having symptoms when they don't catheterize or miss catheterization? Um, and, and how well is catheterization going for them if they're in that category? And are they having incontinence in between that daytime and nighttime? You also wanna assess their bowel symptoms. So what are they doing for bowel management? Are they, do they have a program? What does that entail? How often are they having bowel movements? Cause obviously that can have an impact on their first urinary function. And secondly, it can be a big uh, problem for their quality of life. And lastly, you do want to assess sexual function in these patients. Some of them uh, will still be able to have sexual function and will have other concomitant uh, problems with sexual function. In addition to the mobility issues and other things, they may also have erectile dysfunction or other complications. You uh, very importantly want to assess their dexterity and hand function. Many patients may require clean intermittent catheterization, so you need to assess the ability of them to do that. And would they be able to do that per urethra, per a continent catheterizable channel? Um, those are things you need to really assess, so seeing if they can hold a pen or things like that. You also really want to get an understanding of what's going on at home. Do they have help at home? Do they have someone to ensure they're compliant or are they going to be a compliant patient? Who gets them to and from visits? And, and these things really do have long-reaching implications for their care. And then most importantly, you want to talk to them about what their expectations are. Some patients will come in and say, you know, I've been CICing, but I expect that I'm going to be voiding normally in a couple months. And you'll, you know, you have a, a real talk with them about this is very unlikely. And this may be something you have to do for the rest of your life and kind of meeting their goals to the best of your ability, but tempering their expectations. And that's important in all areas of urology, um, not just man management of these specific patients. So when you're looking at a history, you want to assess their medical history. So of course, what other medical problems they have, if they have diabetes, um, what kind of longevity they have. So if they have, you know, a really poor, uh, poor um, comorbidities and they don't have a long uh, longevity, you may just want to consider managing them with an indwelling catheter versus if they're going to have a long, long life ahead of them, you need to come up with more acceptable solutions. You also want to assess their surgical history as that could impact nervous function. Have they had any pelvic surgery like hysterectomies or prostate surgery for men? Have they had um, any sort of back surgeries because those can also have impacts? Have they had pelvic radiation? And then you wanna take a second to review their medications as well. Specifically, some of these neurogenic patients, for example, Parkinson's patients will be on anticholinergic medications or medications that have those properties for their Parkinson's. And so before you go on to prescribe the medication for their symptoms, you wanna assess how much of an anticholinergic load they already have, as there are some studies now that are linking anticholinergic use with dementia. And so having that frank discussion with them and managing those expectations are useful. Also very often patients will be on a diuretic and that can impact their uh, lower urinary tract symptoms. So maybe changing the time of that during the day can impact their symptoms as well. On physical examination, you want to get an assessment of their mental status and do just a brief neurologic exam to assess their reflexes to kind of identify the, the level of their lesion or where they're impacted. You want to do a pelvic and GU exam, not just for the, the basic things, but you want to assess for women their pelvic floor function. Um, do they have any pelvic floor muscle tone or hypertonicity? And same things on the rectal examination, you can assess for bladder outlet obstruction with your prostate exam, but also the rectal tone to kind of get a better understanding of their neurologic function. And then again, you want to assess hand function, as I mentioned earlier. 
So doing non-invasive office diagnostic tests, you want to get a urinalysis to screen for any urinary tract infections, but be wary if they're already catheterizing with clean intermittent catheterization or they have an indwelling catheter, it's pretty much useless. So I wouldn't do it in those patients because it will always be positive. Um, I simply just send their urine for culture if I'm concerned about an infection. You also want to get a post-void bladder scan. So often these patients have impaired sensation and so they won't know that they're retaining. And so being sure to assess that is, is key in determining who's at high risk and who's not. And a Euroflow can be useful. Uh, it will tell you if there is an abnormality in their ability to empty. And But the thing it doesn't tell you is if it's due to outlet obstruction or bladder dysfunction. And so um, it's useful also in following patients over time. So if you do a procedure on somebody, you can assess if that's impacted their flow with a Euroflow. So here's a Euroflow, which I'm sure many of you have seen. A is a normal Euroflow. B is what's called a plateau uh, Euroflow. And this will tell you again that there is some limitation in emptying, whether it's outlet or bladder, you don't know. And C here, you can see more of a staccato pattern. This tells me likely they're using some sort of Valsalva maneuver to, uh, to help empty or they're straining quite a bit. Um, and so again, tells you that there is some dysfunction there in the ability to empty. Upper tract monitoring. Um, usually I'll do this with a renal ultrasound um, and uh, just a basic serum creatinine. And you want to do this for patients at risk. So anyone who has cervical or upper thoracic spinal cord lesions fall into this category. Anyone with myelomeningocele or spina bifida. And then those who do get urodynamics, if they have altered compliance, juicer sphincter dyssynergia, or known reflux, if they get a video study, those patients need to also get period imaging of their upper tracts. For lower urinary tract evaluation, uh, bladder diary can be helpful in some patients depending on um, if they're volitional voiders and if they have a lot of fluid intake. It's not only diagnostic in telling you what's going on with them, uh, but also tells you how much fluid they're taking and it can be therapeutic for them to see the relationship with some intake and their urinary symptoms. A cystoscopy would indicate uh, urodynamics and imaging and we'll go through those individually. So cystoscopy is indicated in neurologic patients pretty much for similar reasons as you would for a normal patient. So if they have unexplained hematuria, um, if they have recurrent symptomatic infections you want to assess uh, for hematuria, you may find things like bladder stones or other reasons that they're getting recurrent symptomatic infections. If they have a history of bladder augmentation, these patients are at a little bit of a higher risk of bladder cancer. And so you want to assess these at, at some routine intervals. And same with long-term indwelling catheter use. This actually raises the risk of squamous cell carcinoma up to 16, per, 16 times. And so it's, uh, you should be cystoing these patients at regular intervals as well. And then for patients who have new onset difficulty catheterizing, you want to assess because those who do do clean instrument catheterization are at risk for urethral strictures. So here you can see um, the kind of different findings you'll find. These are all neurogenic patients. You can see bladder outlet obstruction. You can see bladder stones, urethral strictures, and bladder tumors. Moving on to urodynamics, the key here in neurogenic patients is that the severity of their symptoms or the specific type, extent, or level of their injury doesn't correlate with the danger to their upper tract. So I can't tell you the number of times I've been surprised doing urodynamics on a patient and seeing horrible reflux and terrible compliance I would not have expected based on their symptoms. So urodynamics gives you a lot of information. It gives you a diagnosis in, some, in most cases. It'll give you some sense of the prognosis, particularly about their compliance, and it can guide treatment, um, particularly if you're deciding between specific types of treatment for the patient, Botox or things like that. Um, and ultimately, it can evaluate success. So very often, if I have a patient with mildly impaired compliance, I may do Botox to see if that improves their compliance. And then a month after Botox, I'll repeat the urodynamics to really see has it made a difference or do they need another option to improve their compliance. 
So your dynamics, this could be a lecture in and of itself, so I'll go over it briefly. Uh, there's a intravesical catheter, which is a dual lumen attached to a flu fluid saline that's at physiologic temperature that goes into the bladder, um, and then a measurement of the intravesical pressure. You have a rectal catheter, which gives you an abdominal pressure, and EMG patches, which are not shown here, but gives you an assessment of sphincter function. And so the, there's a filling phase and avoiding phase, and you can see here on the intravesical pressure uh, and the abdominal pressure, they will mirror each other to some degree. And then you subtract these to get your detrusor pressure to identify what of those pressures is coming directly from the bladder itself. And here you can see these spikes here correlate probably with the patient being asked to cough. Uh, and then they're given permission to void and the abdominal pressure remains low. And this is all detrusor contraction. This is what a normal detrusor contraction looks like in a normal voiding phase. And so you want to assess the eight C's during your urodynamic evaluation. So, and you look at these both at filling and then during your flow. And during filling, you want to assess for any sort of involuntary bladder contractions, which you can see by looking at the detrusor pressure. Uh, you want to assess for compliance. So you'll look at the detrusor pressure. And if you have altered compliance, you'll see kind of a crescendo effect in the detrusor pressure. You want to look at continence during filling. Are they having any accidents? You look at, you'll ultimately determine their capacity and their conscious sensation. So when they're having their first sensation or first urge, and you want to modify your filling rate based on the patient's capacity, based on what you know um, from what they've told you and what maybe their catheterizable volumes are and alter their filling that way. So if someone has a really small capacity bladder, you don't want to fill them at 50 cc's, you'll probably fill them at 20 or 30. Whereas someone who comes in with a liter or two liter residual and went into retention, you can fill them much quicker because likely they have more capacity and they won't have, um, have such a, a sensitive bladder. And then during pressure flow studies, you again want to assess the contractility of the trusor pressure during voiding. You want to assess if they completely empty and then assess for clinical obstruction. And you can use for men, uh, the bladder outlet obstruction index. And for women, there are a number of different nomograms, but essentially looking at the detrusor pressure in relation to the Qmax and seeing if the detrusor pressure is very high and the Qmax is very low, they're likely obstructed. Here's an example of poor compliance. Uh, so here you can see the detrusor pressure, uh, it goes up and the abdominal pressure is low. Uh, it goes up, 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 up and increases. And then they have a leak here and this is called your detrusor leak point pressure or the pressure at which um, you leak when there is no in, there's no detrusor contraction or abdominal contraction. And so this gives you a number and the number that's concerning in detrusor leak point pressure is 40. And so based on McGuire's study, a detrusor leak point pressure of greater than 40 centimeters of water is associated with upper tract damage and they do need some intervention to reduce that risk. You can also add a video component, which I do for the large majority of my neurogenic patients. It will give you a lot of anatomic detail on their bladder contour. So you can assess for trabeculations. Uh, you can assess for reflux up into the kidneys. You can also assess their urethrin. So you can sometimes see detrusor sphincter dysynergia actively when you hit the live floral button, you'll see um, the inability for them to empty with an opened bladder neck, or you can uh, often, rarely, but sometimes see a primary bladder outlet obstruction or primary bladder neck obstruction uh, where the uh, bladder outlet doesn't open at all. So urodynamics are recommended in all patients who have spinal cord injuries and myelomeningocele. And there's really a lot of data on this that suggests if you don't do urodynamics on these patients, they will have inferior outcomes in relation to their uh, long-term renal function. You also want to do this on patients who have neurologic conditions who are considering some sort of lower urinary tract surgery. So for example, Parkinson's patients who are considering a TERP for bladder outlet obstruction. These patients, you want to be very cautious about doing outlet procedures on them because very often they result in incontinence after doing outlet procedures. So you want to make sure you have a really good conversation with them because the most unhappy patients I've seen are those who go from being obstructed to some degree to then having significant urinary incontinence. Uh, and then in female patients, for example, if you you have a multiple sclerosis patient who's considering a mid urethral sling, those type of patients, you should do your dynamic plan to make sure you're not missing um, other concomitant problems. 
and then for surveillance. So at periodic intervals, you should survey spinal cord and myelomeningocele patients. And then if you find abnormalities on your video urodynamics or urodynamics, you wanna assess those patients as well. So patients with DSD, with altered compliance, with a sustained choose leak point pressure that's elevated or reflux. Also, if patients develop recurrent urinary tract infection or patients come in and they're saying, I'm having you know, new incontinence between catheterization or my incontinence has significantly worsened, or you find some upper tract pathology on your ultrasound screening ultrasound. And so these findings, as I mentioned previously, are predictive of later upper tract deterioration. And so they're really important to find early before that occurs. And so we'll move on to some disease-specific pathophysiology. So when you're looking at cortical lesions, like stroke patients, traumatic brain injury patients, they will initially have a period of retention that can last anywhere up to 12 weeks, and then they will go on to develop frequency, urgency, and urgent continence. And so most commonly, they'll have neurogenic DO, um, and that's because they lose that parasympathetic inhibitory control over the voiding reflux in the cortical, uh, in the cortical area. And so they they usually fortunately have intact sensation and a coordinated voiding pattern. So they are at less risk than other patients because then we're not having any sort of outlet obstruction. And so in these patients, you don't need to really do uh, routine upper tract imaging and you don't really need to do your dynamics if they fall into this category. So getting a post residual, as I mentioned, if they're emptying fine, you don't need to do any further investigation. You treat these patients as long as, again, there's no coexisting obstruction. And sometimes you will find it in patients who, for example, male patients who have strokes or Parkinson's can still get obstructed from BPH. And so in those patients, uh, you want to decide between assessing the obstruction and managing their symptoms, um, knowing that sometimes managing the obstruction can cause an increase in their incontinence. But in the absence of that, you want to gear your treatment towards decreasing the overactivity and increasing their bladder capacity. And you can do this with pharmacologic treatment, onobotulinum toxin, and neuromodulation most commonly. And then for refractory cases, you can consider bladder augmentation or urinary diversion. And I'll go over these in a little bit more detail. Uh, the key considerations in these patients is that mostly some, many of them are older and have some baseline cognition and mobility defects. And so anticholinergic effects agents can have significant cognitive effects. And so you want to be careful that you are monitoring for this and telling them or their caregivers or their partners that these medications can have these impacts and look out. And often patients will be, yeah, you know, they have been a little bit fuzzy or they did fall a couple more times. It's not going to be a huge difference necessarily but enough that you know having more falls can be an impact on their significant impact on their health and then again, many of these patients are older um, or it's institutionalized. And so asymptomatic bacteriuria in this population is very common. So often you'll see them coming from their primary care, getting treated for asymptomatic infections, uh, which are you know really just bacteriuria. And so educating the patient on this and their provider on the presence of asymptomatic bacteriuria and then the lack of need to treat this because it results in resistance and then you know real severe problems down the line is, is really important. Moving on to traumatic spinal cord injury. So lower urinary tract function um, can vary depending on how far they are from their event of the spinal cord injury. So initially for, again, the first four to 12 weeks, they'll have what's called spinal shock. And during that time, they'll have an abroflexic detrusor and urinary retention. They'll also have you know, absent reflexes and flaccid paralysis. And so you want to tell, you know, don't want to start their evaluation too soon. So I'll usually have them all come to my office at three months after their spinal cord injury and not sooner. Sometimes their providers will be really eager to get them into. You just have to explain to them that you, know, you don't want to do any sort of major changes during this time. For suprasacral spinal cord lesions, these patients will present with detrusor overactivity and detrusor sphincter dyssynergia. So these patients have a functional obstruction, and it's really a major source of morbidity for them. And these high and they can result in high filling pressures and subsequently lead to upper tract deterioration. So these are at-risk patients. And so all of these patients should have video urodynamic testings. All of them should have upper tract imaging and then surveillance and follow-up depending on these uh, on the treatment interventions and the findings that you have during your dynamics. 
for specifically high suprasacral cord lesions, you want to assess if they're having autonomic dysreflexia and what that is. And it's found specifically in lesions above T6 or T8. But I've seen it in some that are on the lower end. So you do have to just ask, do they ever have symptoms of autonomic dysreflexia when they haven't emptied their bladder? And that normally they'll complain of flushing or a headache uh, or feeling sweaty. But in, in our clinics, you'll see it as hypertension or reflex bradycardia. So they'll have an exaggerated sympathetic response to any sort of noxious stimuli below the level of the spinal cord injury. Very often in our clinics, it's because we're doing a cystoscopy, a urodynamics, and we're filling their bladder. So you do want to continuously monitor these patients. You can just do that with a blood pressure cuff on cycle uh, and a pulse ox just to assess their pulse as well as their blood pressure during uh, urodynamics, but they do need monitoring. If they do develop autonomic dysreflexia, you want to immediately drain their bladder, stop the study, and remove any noxious stimuli. So you want to be sure that they don't have other wounds or there's no constricting clothing on them. And then sometimes they're also impacted. And so sometimes they need some digital stimulation to evacuate their rectum. Uh, but most commonly, bladder drainage works just fine. And uh, you do want to monitor their blood pressure and heart rate during this time. If they don't respond, you then want to assess you can use pharmacologic agents and you want to have these in your clinic. So nitro paste or sublingual nitroglycerin. And I'll say it's very unrare, probably needed to use it on one patient over all my years of training and, uh, and in practice. So it's, it's rare. Usually just the drainage itself uh, is effective. Moving on to multiple sclerosis, this is a very unique disease because it's a demyelinating disease that can really impact the nervous system anywhere um, and can result in, have resultant very varied presentation. Uh, also, it tends to impact women more than men in about a two to one ratio. So here you can see that depending on where the plaques are, the demyelinating plaques are, you will have different findings and different symptoms. So about 60% of the time when uh, multiple sclerosis patients present, they'll have detrusor overactivity due to plaques in the corticospinal tract or the intracranial white matter. And they'll present with urgency, frequency, or incontinence. 25% uh, of the time, they'll also have detrusor sphincter dyssynergia. And so they'll have interrupted, prolonged voiding, dribbling, uh, sensation of incomplete emptying. And these are more commonly the patients that end up in our clinics. The DO patients, I think the neuro neurologists are pretty um, apt at treating DO and will start them on medication. So sometimes we don't see those patients as often. And then you'll see patients who have uh, you know, urinary retention due to sacral cord plaques. And these patients will also present, in addition to the retention, sometimes have recurrent UTIs and require cleaning intermittent catheterization. So in these patients, because they're so varied, I start with a post-void residual. If it's low, I have really low concern for any upper tract damage. But those who do have elevated post-void residual, I'll get a urodynamics on them, um, as well as upper tract imaging to assess for any, any reflux or altered compliance issues. And then again, also in patients who have indwelling catheters, if they want to get rid of the catheter, you do want to do this imaging as well. And so this is a typical spindle top urethra. You can see here that there's an exaggerated opening of the bladder neck uh, and the, you can see the sphincter is closed and that's what you're seeing is detrusor sphincter dyssynergia. And then here you can also see these small trabeculations in the bladder uh, due to this, uh, this, you know, bladder outlet obstruction, prolonged bladder outlet obstruction. So this person um, is at risk for upper tract deterioration. This is what you'd see on video urodynamics. So sacral cord lesions are those that are at a, have diseases below S2 or below or peripheral lesions. They'll often have a depressed or absent sensation below the level of the lesion and a fixed or non-relaxing urethral sphincter. And so in some patients, this can result in that same bladder outlet obstruction um, and the symptoms of bladder outlet obstruction. And again, in these patients, because of that, you want to assess all patients with video urodynamics, upper tract imaging, and a renal function assessment. And then surveillance. So typically, I'll see these patients for an office evaluation, a six to 12 month follow up. Uh, this may change with uh, telemedicine. I think more and more we'll see some of these patients virtually and have them get um, basic lab evaluations at home. Um, but they'll get regular upper tract imaging and renal function for those who are at risk. And then you want to reevaluate them, basically start fresh and repeat urodynamics if they're having these specific changes. So if they have a significant decline in their renal 
perineal function, if they're developing new incontinence or worsening incontinence, hematuria, if they have more UTIs or they're getting hospitalized for UTIs, you want to evaluate. And then if they're having more frequent autonomic dysreflexia, that may be a sign that their bladder is not managed well and they need to change their bladder management. And then again, surveillance cystoscopy in patients with indwelling catheters or bladder augmentations because of that risk of cancer we discussed earlier. So we'll go over treatment options. Um, the treatment really depends on what they're presenting with. And so you want to identify the patients who have you know, adequate filling pressures, normal appearing upper tracts, or the low risk patients. You just want to make sure they're able to empty with a post-fluid residual, or if they need to, clean intermittent catheterization, um, and minimize their symptoms, so their truce or overactive symptoms. And those who have high filling pressures or poor bladder capacity, you want to do more aggressive therapies. So you either want to work to increase their capacity uh, with Botox, for example, or decrease their outlet resistance with their sphincterotomy. I find that that's actually very rare that a patient will want a sphincterotomy. And so you, you'll assess other options because uh, that sometimes results in uh, significant incontinence. And then for refractory symptoms, they may need surgical diversions or outlet support. And um, so let's go over the pharmacologic issues. So anticholinergics, they uh, inhibit the binding of acetylcholine to the muscarinic receptors and inhibit detrusor contractions. They also then clinically will re reduce the number of episodes and severity of their urgency. And they do tend to increase some bladder capacity and the time they have between voiding. These are all equally effective. Uh, some medications have more um, advantages than others, uh, but here's a little table to help you identify the cost and the advantages. And so here, um, depending on what you're looking for, so if you're really worried about the side effects of, a, of anticholinergics, uh, you wanna pick, pay, uh, pick agents that are uroselective and are more extended release. If you're worried about cognitive side effects, uh, Sanctura is less likely to cross the blood-brain barrier, and sometimes Enablex also is useful in this patient population. Um, cost, oxybutynin is, it tends to be the cheapest, the immediate release, but I think extended release, at least in my patient population, has also been very cheap. Um, if you have hepatic impairment, you want to consider Sanctura. That's the only anticholinergic that's, um, that's not hepatically metabolized. It goes through renal metabolism. In pregnancy, Oxybutynin is the only one that's a category class B. And then in uh, severe renal impairment, you want to avoid Sanctura, Tropsium, and choose the other agents that are hepatically metabolized. So side effects of anticholinergics are plentiful because of the acetylcholine receptor cross-reactivity. So patients will very often complain of dry mouth, dry eyes, um, sometimes constipation, uh, dyspepsia, or impaired cognition. And then there are certain contraindications. So patients who have narrow angle glaucoma, usually they won't know if they have narrow angle glaucoma. So you'll simply tell them to discuss with their ophthalmologist and get the okay before they start the medication. Um, also gastroparesis, and then those who are in some degree of retention, this can exacerbate their incomplete emptying, and so you want to be careful in using these medications in those patients. And this is really interesting that 60% of patients who are using anticholinergics for bladder dysfunction will discontinue their use by six months because of their ineffectiveness or their intolerability. And median time is 4.8 months. So you do want to make sure after you start a medication, you have close follow-up with the patient so that they, you know, they, they will often go several months with horrible symptoms and not even talk to you about it because they just think they have to live with it. And so it's important to make sure you have close follow-up with them. A newer medication called Marabegron, beta-3 agonists, uh, was on the market in about 2012. And what this does is it, um, it stimulates the beta-3 receptor, which enhances bladder relaxation and subsequently reduces sensory urgency and bladder capacity. It is as effective as anticholinergics in most of the studies um, and in my experience as well. There are some minimal side effects with this, although it's very well tolerated. Typically, I'll tell patients to check their blood pressure a week after starting the medication to make sure there's no change in their blood pressure. I've actually never had patients with a stuffy nose or headaches, but these are symptoms that they can complain of. Um, and you do want to be careful. This is hepatically metabolized. Um, and then in beta blockers, they need a dose adjustment. And typically, they'll actually need to reduce their dose of beta blockers. So you want to make sure they follow up with their primary care doctor to make sure they're on the optimal dose.
So onobotulinum toxin A, it inhibits the ability of acetylcholine vesicles to bind uh, to the bladder based because it's cleaving the SNAP25 um, pro membrane protein. And so this is often on the in-service. So just knowing that specific uh, finding and it decreases muscle contractility and induces muscle atrophy um, and results in a chemical denervation. So just simply paralysis, just like Botox works on wrinkles, it paralyzes the muscles in the face, it paralyzes the muscles in the bladder. And it lasts approximately six to 12 months. And the studies say on average about nine months. So doing Botox is very well tolerated in this patient population. It's done in the office with just local uh, lidocaine jelly and intravesical lidocaine. You do um, 20 injection sites through the bladder wall um, and you want to inject it into the bladder wall and you see kind of what's like a ground swell. You don't want to see a big blub. That means you're too superficial. You don't want to see nothing at all because that may mean you're too deep. So that's the kind of thing you're looking for. You do want to talk to these patients about urinary retention. The starting dose for neurogenic bladder is 200 units and in that dose, the risk of urinary retention is 20%. So they need to be willing to clean intermittent catheterize if they go into retention. Very often, it's actually a good population to use it in because they're already doing that. Um, and they, again, will need repeated injections. So they need to be okay with that. Also, if you have patients who are getting Botox for other reasons like mus muscular spasticity, uh, you need to coordinate with their neurologist because there's a black box warning of only getting 360 units every three months. And so typically I'll try to do it within a couple days of their injection for their, you know, stiff spasticity so that we're kind of optimizing the window so that every three months they can get their Botox without a problem uh, for, uh, for repeat injections. So for failure to empty, uh, the options are catheterization or surgical. And um, as far as catheterization, the most optimal choice is clean intermittent catheterization if the patient is able, because it reduces the risk of UTI and stones significantly. And so really a preferred option in general. Uh, if you think they can't catheterize, there's actually a number of devices that can help them catheterize. And I didn't know this until fellowship. So uh, there's actually these really devices that can help them with their grip, to grip the catheter or to see better uh, if they have some limitations in being able to see the urethra. And so I think these are really helpful. And I've had some patients actually have success with them and that's really um, encouraging. Indwelling catheters are obviously not ideal for a number of reasons. Uh, urinary tract infections are more common, bladder stones, uh, the risk of malignancy, as we've mentioned before, and then bacteria. So if you look at the data, uh, for each day of catheterization, they're getting a 5 to 8% risk of bacteria, and about four weeks, every single patient will have bacteria. So that, again, puts them at risk for urinary tract infections. But the big reason why we don't like urethral catheters is because of this. So urethral erosions are not infrequent in long-term use of uh, catheters. So here you can see a, a man with a traumatic hypospadias due to indwelling catheter. And in women, very often you'll see this, they'll get a bladder neck erosion. So They'll tell you this story where they've been in their um, in their facility or they've been seeing nurses and they keep leaking around their catheter and so they keep increasing the catheter size or they increase the fluid in the balloon and eventually the whole catheter just falls out because they've developed this huge bladder neck erosion um, from having the catheter and no one's examined them or looked at them down there and this is a real problem because you typically just have to if there's enough urethral length you can sometimes get away with a pubovaginal a really tight pubovaginal sling uh, but usually it requires a bladder neck closure to stop the incontinence. Uh, Superpubic catheter doesn't really reduce your risk of bladder stones, but it is preferred for comfort. It does reduce a little bit of the risk of UTI because it's not going and uh, it's easier to manage and clean and keep, uh, keep hygienic. Uh, it's also easier to change for some of these patients who are in wheelchairs, um, and so it's easier to manage and preferred by a lot of patients. As far as surgical diversions, uh, for those who are willing to catheterize, you can do a bladder augment a, or a catheterizable channel. Um, for bladder augments, the risk of needing to catheterize is about 50%, so you do want to make sure that they are willing to do that. Um, and same thing with catheterizable channels. Sometimes it allows people who can't catheterize or don't have as, as good hand function, but they can reach their abdomen, and so they'd be able to catheterize through their abdomen, but not per urethra. Um, so that's a nice option for 
them and you can use ilium or appendix. I tend to prefer uh, appendix just because that's my experience, but you can use an appendix as well. Um, and then if, if they can't catheterize an ileal, uh, ileal diversion, ileal conduit is also a reasonable option. Uh, so lastly, moving on to urinary tract infections. Uh, so you really want to spend some time discussing prevention with these patients. You want to make sure they're catheterizing appropriately, they're managing their catheters okay, um, they know how to do it to minimize infection, they're washing their hands. Um, you also want to make sure they're drinking enough fluids. Very often these patients just don't drink enough, and so it's, it's simply just getting them to drink more that will improve that uh, dramatically. And then just making sure they're really draining well, they're not stopping the catheter, pulling out the catheter before they're completely drained. They're not getting clogged due to mucus or, um, or just debris and making sure that those things are, are clear and, and wide open. And then making sure they're catheterizing frequently enough. So very often they'll start, especially younger patients, they'll start skipping catheterizations. They're busy, they're doing other stuff, whatever. And then they start getting infections and you probe deeper and you find out they're really not compliant with their CIC regimen. There's also uh, bladder irrigations that can sometimes help decrease the bladder bacterial load. So I've had some success with saline irrigations and gentamicin irrigations. You can also use neomycin and polymyxin B irrigations. Sometimes there's difficulties getting coverage for those, uh, but they are reasonable options and have been shown to be effective in reducing the risk of UTIs in patients, particularly if they're already catheterizing. And the big take home here is to make sure that you are only treating symptomatic infections uh, because they will very often have bacteria, as I mentioned earlier. And so you want to, the patient will very easily tell you they know when they have a UTI and what their symptoms are. Sometimes if it's just cloudy urine, you want to tell them, look, cloudy urine or odor is not an infection um, and, and really spend some time educating them. Uh, but sometimes they'll say, yeah, I get, you know, my muscle spasticity worsens or I notice these really significant changes. And so they know when they have infections and uh, so they can help guide the providers that they see as well in not over-treating them. As far as non-antibiotic prophylaxis, pH manipulation with, um, with methanamine salts uh, really hasn't been shown to have any improvement in neurogenic bladder patients specifically. Cranberry supplements are controversial. D-mannose has shown some promise in patients with multiple sclerosis, but not much. Uh, probiotics have, are still kind of in study. Um, transvaginal estrogens do have shown some improvement in postmenopausal women, specifically in preventing UTI, and that's in all women, as well as neurogenic bladder patients. And then other things are in study, like bacterial interference or vaccines. The jury's still out if these things are going to be useful in preventing um, urinary tract infections. And lastly, what about antibiotic prophylaxis or suppression? So this is pretty controversial and really putting patients who have indwelling catheters in on antibiotic prophylaxis is probably not that useful and can just result in multi-drug resistant organisms. So in, it's, it's better to treat culture-specific symptomatic infections. The way that I found the easiest way to do this is to give the patient a bunch of urine culture orders and just have them drop off a urine sample as soon as they notice symptoms so that that you can, as quickly as possible, get the speciation for those and treat it um, specific to the speciation of the urine culture. And then doing good antibiotic stewardship based on your nomograms and um, you know, AUA recommendations for treatment of UTIs is, is really important. So not over-treating for you know, months at a time with antibiotics and, and just being cautious about how long you're using antibiotics for and using the, the ones based on either their past cultures or, or just your, your community antibiotogram is useful. Um, so that's it. Thank you very much. I can answer questions. Yeah. They, oh my God. Thank you so much for that talk. That was an amazing lecture. Um, honestly, it's going to be uh, such a valuable review. So thank you. If we could have you back every week to give a lecture, <laughs> we would. But um, so one question we had was you, you had mentioned um, with regards to UDS and cortical lesion um, and you said that for those who present a lot, oftentimes I was just thinking about this too. We are consulted in the hospital. Someone has a new onset stroke or something, CVA, mm -hmm. or, and um, you know, new onset voiding dysfunction of some some sort. And you know, we recommend based on the complexity of the situation. Um, I think UDS. You're saying mm -hmm. for many of the cortical lesions, you don't have to do that. 
Um, it depends. I mean, like, so if they're just straightforward, like they literally have some retention after a cortical lesion or a, um, you know, they have a stroke and now they're in some retention. You, first, you want to wait three months or so before you do your dynamics. But if they, you know, if they follow the typical protocol and they just get start having symptoms of urgency frequency and their PVRs are low, you probably don't need to do your dynamics on them. Uh, you'll never be faulted to do it, but I think for, you know, optimal resources, if you have limited availability to do your dynamics or things like that, those patients will probably not benefit from it. But again, there's complex situations. There's men with, you know, who are older, who have CVAs, who may also have outlet obstruction. In those right. cases, we would do it. But generally speaking, if it's very straightforward, they're presenting with urgency, frequency, their PVRs are low, you can go ahead and treat that rather than doing a urodynamics right away. Okay, I guess that, that was my question was, um, um, you know, it's usually often older male, 80 or older female uh, who have these conditions. And then it's such a mixed picture with something going on. So um, we, you know, it's good to know that. Um, the other question um, was in regards to MS patients, um, if PVRs are low, you had recommended, I mean, one thing you had said is they also don't need uh, urodynamics and you can manage them. At what point um, do you start considering urodynamics for them? If it's, if you try medications as a refractory medication, like what point do you say, okay, these people uh, do not have elevated pulse void residuals and, but I, I don't know what's going on, you know? Yeah. So I think, yeah, anytime that you don't know what's going on, your dynamics is a reasonable option. I think it's, you know, it's, again, it's the straightforward, like, okay, their PVR is low. They have urgency frequency. They're having um, some, uh, you know, Detrusor, probably detrusor overactivity, let me treat that. So you can save them in the very straightforward patients. If ever you have a question, that's what your dynamics is for, right? If you have a mixed picture, you're not sure what's going on, you're never going to be faulted for doing your dynamics. It's just trying to avoid it in the straightforward patients. And when you're, you know, uh, when you do that, that will, that will be more useful. And you'll also save your dynamics for the patients who are, who you have the capacity to do them for who need it. Sure. Oh, well, great. Um, I guess um, another question we had, um, this is from Dr. Small. At the VA, we often discuss how to follow up the spinal cord injury patients. Some get annual follow-up with imaging, urine culture, UDS. Others get no follow-up. What's your protocol? So I think if they have an indwelling catheter, you can limit how often you follow them up. Um, but, and then some of them, it, it really depends on the initial baseline neurodynamics and how much of at risk they are. But a lot of them will just have, you know, some of them will have an indwelling catheter, superpubic tube, and those people don't need to have repeat neurodynamics um, every year. And some patients, you know, you really want to keep a close eye on them and make sure that their, their compliance is not altered. And so I don't have a set protocol for all my patients. I kind of take their initial urodynamics into play. And then I definitely see them every year and determine if they need it. And then those that are at high risk, certainly I'll do urodynamics. And I definitely get a renal ultrasound on all patients, um, you know, once a year, in particularly the spinal cord injury um, or myelomeningocele patients. Great. There's also Dr. Jeremy asked, um, any role for acetic acid irrigation in patients with um, suprapubic catheters? Yeah, I don't know the data on that. I think that honestly, irrigation is is probably understudied and and probably does have some positive impact and it's really low risk. Uh, so I think that even just simple saline irrigation is probably useful because they do develop debris and things like that that sit in the in the bladder. So I found even just plain saline irrigation to be useful. I've also had really good success with gentamicin irrigation, um, and it just depends on the coverage issue. Um, but no, I haven't personally tried the acetic acid, uh, or I don't know the data on that to, to talk on that specifically. Sure. Well, there's resounding thanks uh, and such an excellent lecture. So thank you again.